The following program may contain explicit language. It's Wednesday, August 26th, 2020. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Kate Klonick, sitting in for Mike Pesca. If you missed yesterday, to introduce myself, I'm a law professor, and specifically, I teach research and write about online speech, content moderation, and law and tech. You might have noticed that these are topics that have been in the news recently. Trump's looting and shooting tweet, the Nancy Pelosi manipulated video, the other Nancy Pelosi video, policing political ads, fake news about COVID on Facebook, fake news about voting on Twitter. You get the idea. It might seem like these topics and the issue of private companies policing online speech in general has just come up in the last few years, but really it's been happening behind the scenes for decades. Every company from Etsy to GoFundMe to Airbnb to Reddit has some kind of community standards they use to tell people what they can post and what they can't. And they also have a system in place that's run predominantly by people, not computers, not magic algorithms, that manually reviews content and then makes determinations and removes or keeps up content. If you're thinking, oh my God, that's a lot of power for private companies, that would be correct. (laughs) And it's exactly what I study, how the private companies govern our public rights, rights like freedom of expression association, in ways that really no government can because they're operating transnationally, both within governments and nation states and between them. So specifically for the last year plus, I've studied one company in particular, Facebook, and its latest attempts to address this imbalance, a new institution it's setting up or just set up called the Oversight Board. In November 2018, following years of clamor to create a moderation system that was more accountable to users, Mark Zuckerberg announced that over the course of the next year plus, Facebook would set up an Oversight Board, a body of individuals independent from Facebook that would hear appeals from users on Facebook's content moderation decisions. Over the course of the next year and a half, a small team at Facebook called the Governance Team built out what exactly what was being dubbed the Supreme Court of Facebook would actually look like. So this involves six months of workshops, meetings, and consultancy with stakeholders around the world, about 25 to 2,800 people, about what they'd want such a body to be, and then trying to write that all into founding documents, a constitution-like charter, endowing an intermediary trust for independence, and a long set of bylaws and codes of conduct. So I was given unique access to embed with the internal team at Facebook for over a year. No NDA, and I taped all my meetings. And when I got there, the first person they told me to talk to wasn't Mark Zuckerberg. It wasn't Sheryl Sandberg. But in fact, it was another law professor. So on the show today, I spiel about the oversight board looks like now and whether it's going to create any meaningful change for how we govern online speech. But first, I talked to Noah Feldman, a constitutional law professor at Harvard Law School and one of the external architects of the Oversight Board and how it all came about. So, Noah, you are a professor at Harvard Law School. You have been incredibly involved with the setup of the Oversight Board. Really, honestly, many, including Mark Zuckerberg, uh, have completely credited you with this idea. Tell us a little bit about uh, how you set it all up and what uh, kind of led you to thinking about this space, because this was not, you know, online speech was not really your bailiwick before this. I had just finished a biography of James Madison, you know, 600 pages, a brick that reviewers are very nice about it, not too many humans have read. And I was presenting it 
at a workshop at Stanford directed by Michael McConnell, professor then and former judge and someone I have a huge amount of respect for. And I, so I was out in Palo Alto. And while I was there, I had a couple of meetings with people who work on content moderation at Facebook, because like a lot of other people who teach the First Amendment and are interested in the Constitution, I was thinking about how it would make sense to think about free speech in this new social media era. And then I went out for a long bike ride. I rented a bike and went up Old La Honda uh, out behind the Stanford campus. It was much too hard for me. I, I was probably oxygen deprived because I was not up to the ride. And somewhere near the top with the endorphins running, it suddenly hit me that what Facebook needed was a kind of Supreme Court. And what I was thinking of when I thought of that was that Facebook is faced, just are the other social media platforms, with a basic asymmetrical problem when it comes to speech that's sort of similar to the ones that governments have always been faced by. Namely, the people who want to take down certain speech are very focused and they're very concentrated and they care a lot about taking down speech. Whereas the preference for free expression is a little more diffuse. It's a little more general. We all sort of, in an abstract way, believe in free expression, but we're not necessarily going to get up every morning and fight hard for a particular piece of nasty content not to be taken down. And what hit me was that historically, the way governments have addressed that is they've created an institution, namely the institution of the Supreme Court or Constitutional Court, which is independent of the political process, which follows some general principles or rules devoted to free expression that come from a constitution usually, and which has the job of standing up for those principles no matter which way the political winds are blowing in a given moment. And that, although it's not a perfect solution to free expression, is a reasonable solution that a lot of governments have used. And the only impediment to it was that private companies had never done that before. But, you know, being an academic, I thought to myself, well, it's just an idea. And I came home and I wrote it up in, you know, a 1,300-word little essay, which I thought maybe I would publish as an op-ed or something. And then I showed it to Sheryl Sandberg, um, whom I was staying with, who was an, an old friend. We went to college together. And Cheryl said, you know what, let me send this to Mark and let's see what he thinks about it before you run right out and publish it. So I said, sure. And she handed it to Mark. And then unbeknownst to me, Mark and the company had been thinking a lot about ways to diffuse power, to move decision-making on some important topics away from senior management and towards independent people or entities or organizations. And so I think it was just serendipitous that at just the moment he was thinking about those things, I made this proposal to him and I had no idea of knowing that it would resonate. I was really amazed that it did, but it turned out that it did resonate. And I think that was because Mark was so committed to this idea that he shouldn't be making the ultimate decisions on things like this by himself. Yeah, I, you know, I think that that's so interesting. And um, recently, I had the chance to talk to him. And one of the things that he reiterated was that he'd been thinking for a long time, like since 2009, about various legislative models to kind of devolve power um, away from um, kind of key policymakers in the company to kind of uh, users in a participatory process, but had been unable to kind of get a representational model that he thought would basically parse. And I, I think it's really interesting that you bring up this idea that there's um, of constitutional courts are tried and true models specifically in the realm of um, freedom of expression. So when you kind of continued to um, advise on this, what were some of the most important moments that you just thought were key? Like, I know there's a number of founding documents, there's the charter, there are the values that Facebook itself holds that they did a revision on um, 
last August, about a year ago, about how they were going to balance various values like equity, freedom of expression, safety. And I'm I'm curious what you what you think the key part of the court being set up was it the people that were put on it? Is it the administration? Is it the independence of the trust? Is it all of it together? All of the different parts have a part to play. I think the key idea that Facebook had to be committed to, and which pretty quickly they came around to the view that they would be committed to, was that the body making the decisions, ultimately it came to be called the oversight board, would be genuinely independent. And that was hugely important because ultimately the way constitutional courts work is that they have to actually be independent entities. If they're controlled by the executive branch or the legislative branch or some part of the administration of a government, no one will think or believe that their decisions are genuinely independent and they'll come under political pressures. And that's the same danger that would be faced by you know, anyone trying to make these content moderation decisions. You know, politicians are pushing one way, other politicians are pushing the other way, advocacy groups are pushing in their own directions. So the goal was really to create some degree of independence and insulation. Then the hard part, after agreeing to that idea, was to actually put it into place. And all the elements you mentioned, um, selection of a very diverse group of people, assuring that they're not being paid directly out of Facebook funds, but through a trust that's created independently, getting trustees to keep an eye on that trust. All of those are crucial elements to the task of achieving the independence. But the key element is the independence. The second thing I think that's comparably important to the independence is reason giving. You know, if Supreme Courts or constitutional courts decided cases, but never explained why they were deciding those cases, they would not enjoy the kind of popular legitimacy that most of them enjoy most of the time in the democratic world. They get that legitimacy because they explain openly why they've made their decisions. And that means acknowledging that there are really hard choices to be made, choices on which reasonable people can really disagree with each other. And so the board hasn't done this yet, but the board is committed to issuing explanations of its decisions and to dissenting opinions if there are dissenting opinions. And as I envision it, and as indeed as the board's documents that you were mentioning envision it, those statements will say, here are the values we're applying here's the interpretation of the values we have, and maybe most important, here's how we're balancing those values against each other. Here's the value of free expression. Here's the value of safety and security. Here's the value of equality or equity. Here's how they interacted, and that's why we decided what we decided. And so that will be the other really major element to establishing the meaningful legitimacy of the board. It'll be independence, the exercise of independent decision-making, and explanations for why those decisions have been reached. And that's not going to cause everybody to like every decision any more than it causes people to like the decisions of constitutional courts all the time. It's about showing everybody that there is a genuine process of deliberation and thought in deciding about issues that reasonable people could disagree about. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And it's going to be interesting. It has been a long couple of weeks, I would say, of our months since the board was launched and all of the names of the board members were released to the public. And I think that there have been basically two major critiques. Um, One is that the board's founding documents um, do not, at the end of the day, give the board enough power. It's not going to be a powerful enough check on Facebook. And you and I and Evelyn Dueck and a lot of others have pushed back about this idea of reasoning and the idea that having the transparency around these decisions and publishing them creates this like powerful kind of form of weak form review, that that is uh, effectively a, like a, a very strong measure um, in which Facebook would pay, like have a lot of 
pushback on the company if they failed to uh, adhere to the oversight board's advice after they'd gone to all of the trouble and work of setting it up. That brings me to the next kind of big point of controversy, which has been whether or not Facebook should ask the first question of the board and have that be the first question, whether or not the board should start hearing cases faster or more quickly from users, especially in light of Donald Trump's tweets that basically said about the looting and shooting, there was a lot of pushback. Well, like, where is the board on this? Why can't the board act to kind of take this thing down? I'm wondering about what your thoughts about that are. We've talked a lot about over the course of the last year or two about Marbury versus Madison having one large moment of um, kind of sweeping judicial review being set out. But a lot of people have pushed for it to be a much slower process and the and the bites that the board takes to be much smaller and not so broad. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Let me start with the not enough power worry. And let me take you back to when I was proposing this idea in the first place, and lots of people inside and outside of Facebook were very skeptical of it. And their, their critiques ran in two different directions. One was actually very similar to the criticism you just mentioned. The board won't be powerful enough. It won't be able to stand up to Facebook. The other critique was the exact opposite, 180 degrees from the other way. This will be too powerful. Facebook's going to be compelled to listen to it. It could make decisions that would implicate the business model of the whole company. It's completely crazy. And my response to those criticisms were, those are both really plausible possibilities, but they can't both be true. (laughs) And we're going to find out in real life now whether, in fact, the board does have sufficient power, and that is going to take time. So I find it, to be honest, a little bit absurd to criticize a board that does not yet hear cases for not being powerful enough. Maybe it won't be powerful enough. That's a possibility. Maybe it'll be too powerful. That's also a possibility. The reality is that the experience, the global experience of constitutional courts, is that sometimes they're super powerful and sometimes they're not all that powerful. And it really varies depending on the country and the historical moment and the institutional circumstances. The U.S. Supreme Court has been wildly powerful in some periods of time and very weak in other periods of time. So it's too soon to know. And we'll have plenty of time to argue about that when it does make decisions. That leads me to answering your second question about whether Facebook's oversight board should start with a mega case, you know, like, do we shut down the president if he were to say that he won the election and hasn't really won it yet? Or should it start with smaller, more ordinary cases about hate speech, about nudity policy, about, the, about misinformation, about the plethora of very important, but maybe not election determinative issues that arise on Facebook every day? And what I would say there is that the experience of constitutional courts globally is that the most successful ones started relatively modestly. They figured out how they were going to do things. They got practice in making good decision-making. They developed the ability to reach consensus in important cases and to show disagreement in less important cases. And they built themselves up to a grand moment when they could really take a major stand on something. So Marbury against Madison, which constitutional law professors, that's my day job, like to point to as the first major case where the Supreme Court struck down legislation passed by Congress as unconstitutional, didn't come till 1803. It was about a political controversy that had arisen in 1801, and the Supreme Court had come into existence with the Constitution in 1789-90. So it took them almost 15 years to hear a case that was pretty significant. And there's a whole school of historical thought that claims that Marbury against Madison wasn't even all that important when it was decided, that we didn't start thinking it was really important for another century and change later. So 
the, the takeaway for me from this is that caution is usually appropriate when you're doing something brand new and experimental. And so although my instincts all say, yes, this is such an important election and these issues are so important and the board was created precisely to address these difficult problems at a difficult moment, and that is where my instincts lie. My instincts say, go for it, court, you know, go for it, oversight board, you know, get out there and really sink your teeth into the major issue. The lesson of history is caution is usually the wiser idea if you want to create an institution that's durable and can withstand the kinds of pressures that it's going to withstand. So I think that's the reasonable, measured response. And I'm not always a reasonable, measured person, as, as you know, Kate. So when I try to, when I go with my instincts, I say, oh, take a big case. But then I take a deep breath and I try to be reasonable and measured, which is usually the better thing to be. And I say, yeah, let's, let's be a little cautious here. Let's allow cases to bubble up. Some can come from Facebook. Some can come from users. We'll get a mix of cases. And let's let the board figure out what it's doing rather than on day one telling them, please decide the U.S. presidential election. Yeah. One I want to ask you about, though, is like, as someone who wrote, um, as you characterized it, this is not me. I would never say this about your book, but um, your 600-page brick on James Madison. I am curious what you think Madison would make of all of this, especially to the democratization point, like whether or not this had been like getting rid of the gatekeepers, whether it was a good thing or not, whether this grand experiment of the Internet was, you know, ultimately the right course, what his solution would have been. You know, in the course of his own really long career, Madison was on both sides of this issue. You know, when the Constitution was first being designed, and he was the principal architect, he wanted to have some degree of public representation, but he, like most of the other framers, feared the word democracy. They preferred the word republic. They thought if too many people who didn't have the requisite commitment to the common good got too involved in politics, it would blow things up. So, you know, initially he was all about protecting government decision-making and balancing it through the different branches rather than saying, we'll balance it from what the public wants, because he didn't really trust the public. Then Alexander Hamilton and the Federalist Party got control of the presidency, and in his view, in Madison's view, they got control of George Washington, and they started implementing policies that Madison hated. And Madison flipped, and he and Jefferson founded the Democratic-Republican Party, because they wanted, and they used the word democratic in that, in that party's name themselves, even though they had hated the word democracy before, because they now thought that it was too risky that elites like Hamilton and the financial markets that Hamilton created and championed would dominate political decision-making. And they said there's only, and Madison said this, there's only one check on an elite like that, and that is the people. So we need the people to get involved. So, you know, you can take your pick between Madison at time one, when he's designing the Constitution, is really worried about the people, or Madison at time two, when he's trying to get power back from the Federalists, and he really believes in the people. Those were both Madison. I think, you know, the real takeaway for me is that this is a real dialectic. It's a real paradox. To make a democracy work, you have to have the people, but you also have to have the capacity for reasoned judgment and decision-making away from the people. And what we've evolved in the United States is a system where some decisions are popular and others are not. And to me, decisions about free expression or about other fundamental rights are the ones that are best suited not to being made under the vicissitudes of tremendous public pressure. And that's why we give those decisions to a Supreme Court. And that's why it made sense for Facebook to put these issues, these free expression issues, in an independent body rather than in some popularly selected body. 
Yeah, I think that that's a wonderful summary. And I, I you know, I love that dialectic in, in Madison's story because I think it, it makes a lot of sense to me. And I also think that it's kind of a remarkable story of one of the um, really critical people in American history having really... I don't know, thoughtful and not just thoughtful, um, being able to be recursive about their views on how they think about things. I think we're going to leave it there. That was uh, a wonderful summary and it was so great to have you on uh, and all of the work that you've done on the board, but also just kind of having it put in context of the Constitution, of the founding, of free expression and constitutional law. I just think that this is going to be really important as people get ready to kind of hear about the board's decisions, which are going to be, I guess, coming up in uh, in October. So we will see whether this grand experiment is so grand. And it will take some time. That's my one takeaway for, for listeners. You know, we won't be able to judge it right away. You never can with things in life. Yep. I think that that's a really smart point. Well, thank you so much, Noah. My pleasure, Kate. Thanks for having me. The best analogy of what the Oversight Board is, is exactly what Noah set up and describes, a constitutional court. But if it's a court, how does it work for you, the user, and who is on it? And probably most importantly, how can we be sure they're independent from Facebook, and how much power could they actually have over Facebook? So eventually, the Oversight Board is imagined to be 40 people. Right now, it's just 20. Those people were announced in May of 2020, and they are remarkably impressive. Pretty much everyone has agreed on that when the news broke of who was going to be on it. A Nobel Peace Prize laureate, the former prime minister of Denmark, former UN special rapporteur on free expression, a former editor-in-chief of The Guardian, judges, human rights experts, lawyers, journalists, and academics. It's a pretty serious group. They're not hearing cases yet, though the public keeps clamoring for them too. But there's a tremendous amount of administration in setting up a group of people across 15 time zones and 27 languages in the middle of the pandemic. When they do hear cases from users, it will look like this. If your content is removed from Facebook, let's say it's because you're a woman and you post a topless selfie violating Facebook's nudity policy. Facebook's female nudity policy, by the way, has long been the subject of dispute, specifically around the idea of breasts. Women have protested the idea that they are censored for being topless, while men are not. Uh, There have been carve-outs thus created for uh, things like breastfeeding, using topless photos for protest, and using topless photos to discuss medical conditions and things like mastectomies. It wouldn't be unsurprising if this is one of the first decisions that the board actually listens to. So let's say you post this topless selfie violating Facebook's nudity policy. You can appeal that removal through Facebook, but if it's kept down right now, you're just shit out of luck. But what the board offers or will offer is a chance to appeal outside of Facebook. If you think there was an error of enforcement, that the content was removed incorrectly under Facebook's rules, like let's say it was for a mastectomy and so therefore it shouldn't have been taken down, or if you believe the underlying rule is wrong, like a lot of women do, you can click a button and you'll get a unique ID code. You'll have a few days to take that ID code and copy and paste it into a separate website run by the Oversight Board. You'll be able to make your case, give details and context you think are important, and then your case will be submitted to be reviewed by the board's case selection committee. And this is where it becomes just like the U.S. Supreme Court. The board won't hear direct appeals, but rather pick the cases it thinks are the most important to look at. 
If your case is selected, you'll be notified and have a chance to add more to your case file, but then it goes to an anonymous random five-person panel of board members who will discuss it and reach a consensus. Whatever their decision, the decision will be written and dissents can accompany it, and then it will go to the full board for approval. All 20 or 40 or whatever number of members constitute the board at that point. If it's not approved, the whole panel process starts again. But if it is, and let's say the board decides to reinstate your content, your nude selfie, it will publish the decision, and Facebook will have to comply with that. They've bound themselves to enforcing the specific decisions of the board. And so your specific picture will have to go back up. But maybe the board also said in issuing its decision, listen, your nudity policy for women is stupid. Change it. It goes against human rights norms, and it's just not right. Well, that would not be binding on Facebook. They could totally ignore it. But at the very least, what these papers that they have signed with the oversight board say are that they're obligated to respond to any policy directives by the board publicly, which could have massively powerful effect if only through enforcing change through reputational pressure created by the transparency of these decisions. Separately, just by the way, All of this is supposed to happen within 90 days. So if you're sitting there listening to this very long literal spiel about this crazy form of procedural justice and oversight and thinking that there's no way this will work at scale and that it is completely bonkers and more than a little batshit, trust me, you are not alone. For the last few years, I've watched as everyone calls this thing toothless to a Potemkin village to uh, somebody else's problem field for Facebook. And I don't disagree. There are a million reasons that this might not work or this could go wrong. But... And this is a big but. What else have we got that's better? Government regulation is largely impractical around issues of speech, especially in the U.S., and possibly actively harmful in places where internet platforms are used to spy and surveil citizens. Maybe antitrust could help, but the one-to-one on that problem is unclear. And if that is the solution, in breaking up companies, we don't necessarily make the problem of governing speech any better. After years and years of studying this, I come down to this. I don't care about the governments. I don't care about the companies. I care about the users and their rights. And if something like the Oversight Board, which does in fact evolve a tiny, tiny toehold of power from a massive technology giant, maybe that can actually be the start of something revolutionary, the start of something Madisonian, the start of something great, the participatory democratization of big tech. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Margaret Kelly. Guest hosting for Mike Pesca, I'm Kate Klonick. You can listen to more of The Gist from Slate Podcasts wherever you listen. The Gist, um paru de paru de paru. And thanks for listening.